0: Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we try to cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke.
1: And I'm Jay McKenzie.
0: Robert Drysdale is one of the all-time greats in the world of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and submission grappling, having won the two most prestigious titles, the International Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Federation World Championship in 2005 and the Abu Dhabi Combat Club, or ADCC, Open Weight Championship two years later. He also retired undefeated from mixed martial arts and continues to coach on events such as the Ultimate Fighter. He runs his own academy, Drysdale Jiu-Jitsu, in Las Vegas, Nevada, as well as the Zenith Association with Rodrigo Cavaca. Robert is also a history major, and he recently wrote a book and produced a documentary about the origins of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu entitled Opening the Closed Guard. Robert is a dual American-Brazilian citizen, and he spent his early years going back and forth between the two countries. In 2018, when Jair Bolsonaro was elected president of Brazil, Robert was alarmed at the direction he saw the country going. He started speaking out about this, and it cost him. He recently did an interview with MMA website, BloodyElbow.com, where he stated that he would prefer to live under a bridge than to support Bolsonaro. We're very lucky to have Robert on with us today to provide his unique perspective on the events of January 8th in Brazil and where he sees things going in the future. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating and a review on the app that you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe at didnothingwrongpod.com to get our content straight into your inbox. All of our work is free, but we're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that ensure that we can keep doing this important work. Thank you. Robert, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you uh, for the opportunity. I'm very glad to be here.
0: Yeah, well, we're really glad to have you. Obviously, you're a hugely successful athlete, but you mentioned on your TED Talk, you've seen the dark side of competition, the pressure people feel to achieve, to always win and not get consumed by failure. You mentioned that you've seen the effects, some of them firsthand, including anxiety, depression, even suicide. Retirement can be very difficult for athletes in any sport that performed at the kind of level you performed at how do you deal with this now? And you're retired. And do you still feel like you know what you're going to be doing with the rest of your life? Or are you still sort of just figuring it out?
2: I guess figuring yourself out is a a constant, you know, I don't think there's ever a moment where you truly know yourself or what you're made out of. I like to think it's a constant, you know, uh, um, becoming, you know, it's something that you, you move into, and then you discover new things, and that opens new doors. And I think that's what makes life challenging. If you were a If you ever become a finished product or you really know what you are, I think life would be unbearable. So at the same time, I, I do feel after retirement, there's a bit of a, what am I? What am I meant to do? What am I doing now? At the same time, I enjoy the process of new discoveries. I rediscovered my passion for reading and writing. I discovered a passion for filmmaking, a passion for all these other things that You know, I think they were in the back of my mind, but I never really explored because I was so immersed in in competition.
0: And it's so easy to get locked into that world where that's all you do and that's all you really pay attention to for a long time. You know, doing jujitsu myself, I've had some of that where, like, you're always doing something with it. And then once you stop, you get hurt, you take an injury and you stop for a while. You're kind of like, oh, wow, what now?
2: Absolutely. And it's a difficult thing because I love jujitsu. But at the same time, like, it's not it doesn't define me. You know, I don't want to be in my deathbed one day and look back and all I did was compete and teach. And you know, I, I would like to think that I, I have more to offer that I can achieve more and then I, 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 that I'm better than that, you know, and
0: right. I'm not just
2: people who live their lives that way, but to each their own, you know, but my own standards that I apply to myself, I want to do more. So, but without letting jujitsu go, cause I, I love, I like it too much. You mm-hmm. know? So I, I like to coexist. Definitely.
0: On another podcast episode you did, you said that Brazil still sees itself as a colony. You mentioned the Monroe Doctrine, which was essentially U.S. policy to maintain dominance over the countries in the Western Hemisphere. Now the Monroe Doctrine has been invoked by guys like Steve Bannon, who recently used it to justify stolen election claims in Brazil that were meant to keep Jar Bolsonaro in power. I guess the question we have is... Do you think that Jair Bolsonaro is really an ally for the United States? Or do you think he's just kind of a convenient ally for the MAGA movement? Because he says a lot of the same things they do.
2: I don't think Jair Bolsonaro truly has any stances that are, you know, complex in geopolitical terms. I don't think he's that sophisticated. I think you lose them way before that. It's there's a reason why he's so appealing to the, you know, the, the average Brazilian. It's a very simple discourse, a very simple narrative. You know, it goes gun, 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 kill bad guys, you know, mm-hmm. and beat up the opposition. And yeah, Brazil's going to be a perfect country then. you know, like it's it's so it's almost childish. You know, I don't think he really understands the world or what he believes in. And I, I think he's a bit of a he became a bit of a tool for a certain segment of Brazilian society that has a better understanding of what's going on in the world and what's going on in the continent. Namely, the economy minister edges like i think that guy has a better understanding of what's going on in the world and i don't think he's an ally of the united states per se or even the maga movement i think he's an ally of big business i think he's going to do what's best for big business if that means selling the country to foreign investors that's what he's going to do i think that they like to associate themselves with um you know maga movement in the u.s because they have one thing in common what their voters have in common is they love conspiracy theories it's a similar crowd in the sense where I mean, in Brazilians, Brazilians copied Americans so much they even copied storming the the capital Bra- right. hill in the of Brazil after the elections. Like, it's not be original at least, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as you know, Jair Bolsonaro being an ally of, I don't think he even understands. You know what is he is allying himself to? Brazil has been historically very submissive to the United States in political, economic terms. It's always been in social, cultural terms. It's it's uh, it borders on a colony. You know, we we like to think that colonialism is over. You know, I'm I'm more pessimistic. I think colonialism just changed. Some people call it neo I think that's an appropriate term.
1: You mentioned um, the foreign investment in Brazil, that Bolsonaro really allowed that to happen. And it's it's interesting because Trump had this very nationalist, populist rhetoric. Oh, he's a, a man of the people and all this. And meanwhile, he's making friends with Saudi Arabia, UAE, getting all this money in from other places. And I guess I didn't follow Brazil closely enough to know, you know how Bolsonaro was allowing this to happen. I guess could you break that down a little bit? Like, what's he allowing to go on, or is he is he a true populist, or is it just rhetoric?
2: I think he's a he's a bit of a populist. You know, I mean he he's a bit of a demagogue. I think it works in Latin America because Latin American population in general is not very politically literate. So, and I don't mean this to offend anyone, but it's really like you know they're learning their their facts on TikTok. You know, I'm not even exaggerating. Yeah. <laughs> learning their news on on Instagram, and that's where they're getting their news from. So. They're very gullible, and you know, guys like Bolsonaro take advantage. of campaign managers, really, you know, because they had to. They call it media training, right? So right. he went through some radical media training once he became a became a presidential candidate. <laughs> but I think they have their eyes on Brazil's wealth. You know, Brazil, as everyone knows, is a. They call it the sleeping giant. That's what mm-hmm. Brazilians call it. Brazil is a sleeping giant, and it's true. It, it is a threat to the United States in in, in terms of potential because it has. Everything. It's hard to find a resource that Brazil doesn't have plenty of. Brazil's national prize is their oil company, Petrobras. You know, so there's a reason. It's a very profitable. There's a lot of oil in Brazil that they found recently, and there's a reason why the Bolsonaro um, you know supporters they have to keep talking about the corruption of Petrobras because they want to sell it. So they have to keep (laughs) hammering. All, it's corrupt. It's corrupt. Corrupt. And there's a significant portion of the Brazilian population who, ironically, calls itself patriotic. They wear green and yellow, so they must be patriots, right? Of course, of course. It's all it's about the colors. That's all it is, right? Yeah, you got the right colors. It's, it's it's all it is, right? They're actually surprisingly supportive of selling Petrobras to foreign investors, which would be a dream for guys like Gettys and and you know people who support Bolsonaro because. You know, they would be on the on the receiving end of those profits. So the Brazilian in me speaking here is I'm very opposed to it. I think that corruption can be solved. And there's no doubt. Brazil is a very corrupt society. It's always been. And it's I mean, it it has problems deeply rooted in its I would say beyond its politicians and politics and well into the culture, the fabric of the culture itself is incredibly corrupt. So Brazil needs to go through some radical cultural changes before it even begins to solve its political issues. But I don't think you start that by selling the the, the national wealth to foreign investors. I think that's a terrible idea. It is.
1: It is. Yeah. I feel like I have to ask you about this with copying the United States in some ways. With January 6th here, we had people storming the Capitol and a lot of them, there are some white nationalists, some of these QAnon supporters and that kind of helped fuel the movement. Do, I don't know how, if you follow it this closely, but with, with January 8th in Brazil, um, did you feel like there was a QAnon component? Was that part of it? I know that picked some steam up in, in Brazil.
2: Yeah. It's what you're describing is, is turning into a global movement and it's underground and they're quiet and they're silent. It's strategical. You know, they're gathering supporters, but they can quickly organize in, 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 you know, in these forums. And there's no determined leadership, which means that it's, in some ways, it's, it's odd because in some ways it's a good thing, but in some ways it's a terrible thing because that means that anyone could lead them anywhere. You know, you don't even know, I can't even right. identify who's organizing these people. But what they, what they have in common is like they'll get one little piece of information and they will draw this whole, this series of conclusions based off of one piece of information, which might be true. That's the interesting thing about conspiracy theories. Like a lot of times they'll, they'll pick that one fact that is true. For example, if the mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies are corrupt and they're lobbying with Washington. Like, absolutely. We know that. I mean, that's not controversial. Everyone knows that. But then they will go that and go China is installing microchips in the vaccines. And like, OK, let's, <laughs> let's calm down, people. Like, <laughs> But they draw these conclusions and they'll post a video with some emotional, emotionally appealing music in the background. And and it, it gives them this air of like, we are revolutionaries. Like we are patriots. We are saving our country from the corrupt. And they feel that way. I have friends within that movement. So they truly, they're genuine people. They're honest people. It's just that there's no way I can say this without being somewhat arrogant and perhaps even offending. But I think it's just a case of the failure of the American and Brazilian, for that matter, educational system. We stopped teaching critical thinking a long time ago. People don't know how to filter information. We bombarded people with information, right? That's what the internet is. Mm -hmm. We gave everyone a microphone, so everyone has an opinion now. And everyone can Mm -hmm. voice their opinion, and they can click, and all clicks are created equal, which is terrifying. Because in there's hierarchy. White belts don't open their mouths on the mats. If you're black, you get to talk. If you're a brown belt every now and then, you get to talk. But if you're a white belt, you shut up. But in politics, all clicks are created equal, which is a terrifying feature of democratic thinking when, you know, when the population is not prepared to filter information and believes everything that they want to believe. It's emotion guiding their political stances and people are easily manipulating this day and age. And and I think that's what's so terrifying of people is that they, they do share these, these traits and guidance. I, I worry that these people become even more organized as a global movement and God knows where that be to because I don't think they really understand what they're doing.
0: And I saw in your interview where you were talking about how a lot of it was that these people have locked themselves in echo chambers to a large extent. They are in TikTok. They're on in Instagram. They don't have anybody else that's sort of poking through that. And I was refereeing a tournament the day the election results came down. And all the Brazilians on the crew could not believe that Lula won. They were saying things like, that's fake, that's a lie, we're going to get on a plane. And a lot of the answer was nobody they knew on Instagram was supporting Lula. That was the whole thing. And I found myself thinking, oh my God, this is the same problem we have up here in spades.
2: Yeah, it's funny because, you know, I, I get the same reactions. Like, I have family members. They're convinced that there was fraud because, like, every single one in your family voted for Bolsonaro. It's like <laughs> you don't understand that there are segments of resilience. There is a difference between Bolsonaro supporters and Lula supporters. Lula supporters are normally from the lower economic strata, right? So you're talking misery, poverty, lower middle class, like that range right there, which is the majority of the country. Right. So, but they're not politically active. They're not politically vocal. They're normally shy about their stances. They're not very, uh, they don't, they're not educated people. They're not, they have that in common. The difference between them and the middle class and upper middle class who votes for Bolsonaro is that they're, despite being completely, um, they're not uneducated either. They think they are because they've been mm-hmm. to Miami a couple of times shopping for Nikes. <laughs> Therefore, their culture, it's very typical of Latin American elites. I mean, you have to have lived in Latin America to understand what I'm talking about. You know, you have to be a foreigner that goes to Latin America. Because if you grow up there, you don't see it either. I didn't see it until I left the, Brazil, and came to the United States, came back as a young adult. And that's when I started seeing things different. Like, oh, this is insane. There are two <laughs> countries coexisting. You know, you get used to it because you think, you think it's the norm. But the difference between the, the middle class in Brazil, the upper middle class, they think themselves as Europeans. Like, we are different. We're not them. They have a term for it. They call it povon, which means big people, which means it's just a really a euphemism for poor people. So povon are stupid. The povon don't know how to vote. The povon don't have culture. The povon this, this, yada, yada, yada. They even go to different nightclubs. And I remember this. I had some sweets that came over to train with me back in 2001 or whatever it was. And they were like – I had my students. My students always been mixed. They had like poor students, and I had some wealthier ones. And the wealthy ones, of course, wanted to hang out with the Swedes, and they wanted to take them to the cool nightclubs, right? But the Swedes didn't want to go to those nightclubs. They wanted to go to the Samba nightclubs, where, like, the typical <laughs> were going. And the poor students were trying to drag them. And I felt myself in the middle, and I was so confused. And the Swedes couldn't understand why they couldn't go with the poor guys, because that's what they wanted to see. Right? They wanted to be the troop. They didn't want to listen to techno music, you know? No. <laughs>
0: They want to go to the Copacabana. They want to do all that.
2: Why would you want to go see that filth? They didn't use that word, but that's what they were thinking. And then, you know, I guess the Swedes finally had their way and they went to to listen to Samba, which is what they wanted to begin with. But (laughs) it's very divided. And they're they're incredibly arrogant people. And the, the thing that's perhaps, you know, I mean, this is what gets to me is that it's not like they're smart people. They just think they are. You know, I'm not saying I am, but. These people are also getting their education from YouTube, so they're no—I mean, they're no better than the people they criticize. So that's what they have in common. You know, it's just that with the, the Workers Party, for all their flaws, they did pull out 36 million Brazilians out of poverty, and that's not me. That's the UN. That's FAO. Like they, that's a, their study. That's not my opinion. Right. The decade Lula was in power, his first two mandates, the first two years of Dilma, the World Bank—not me, not Robert Dreisow—the World Bank was very far from being a left-leaning organization. They called it the golden decade of Brazilian economics. You can look this up. It's not controversial. So these are, leading economists working for the World Bank, Mm -hmm. talking about what the Workers' Party had done for Brazil during the decade they were in power. The middle class in Brazil was thriving when Lula was in power, but they can't stand the man. They simply cannot stand what he stands for. He Mm -hmm. stands for a Brazil that's unified. He stands for investing in the country from the bottom up, which is how you grow a country. Mm -hmm. Right, they have different ideas. They like the the stratification of Brazilian society, and it's I mean, you look at every civil war in Latin America. And they have that one common theme, is that they're, they're they're terrified of like losing their their political and social status. It's what they this is where Latin America you know warfare comes. In. It's just like it's a common theme, and surprisingly, it's still it still lingers. It's you know it's two hundred years old. Huh. So how are your friends
0: who are Bolsonaro supporters taking it now that Lula's president, now that they had their chance to get that? It didn't work out. They had their attack. It didn't work out. It looks, from everything I've read, it looks like there was a coup that was planned and it didn't come off the way they thought it was going to come off. And now you've got, you know, Bolsonaro maybe hanging out in Miami, hoping that he doesn't end up having to go back anytime soon. How are the people that you know down there kind of handling that?
2: I, I saw a, a video there. It was so funny. I was like, I, I was like barely laughing when I heard it. Cause it was this guy, he was a Brazilian comedian and he was talking about, Oh man, I was walking around the streets and the communists took over and they nationalized <laughs> all my property and the churches were burning and the children were all gay. And then they went on this rant about all the awful things that had happened. Like, and, you know, obviously nothing changed, you know, because, you know, I would be too cynical of me to say that nothing changes. You know, there are changes, but there are no radical changes because people don't change, you know. So what changes is, I think a very wise man once told me that two things that change in the world are economics and technology. Those two things are constantly changing. Everything else pretty much stays the same. And it's, unfortunately, there's a lot of truth to that. But I think they're, they're, they're dealing with it. They're going to go back on with their life. And the, 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 this, this is what's so... I think this is a destructive feature of democracies, is it becomes so polarized that at some point, for example, the people who voted for Bolsonaro will spend the next four years rooting for the other guy to fail, which is essentially rooting against their own country. And then when the Bolsonaro's back in power, the other half is gonna do the exact same thing. So they spend the four years undoing what the guy that you know that came before them was doing. And then undermining whatever progress you know that that pred, the current president is trying to make. So there's a lot of you know butting heads and not a lot of progress because people don't agree on much. I mean, not that I'm I got some grand ideas to solve this problem, but I think the solution would be let's start with what we agree on. Right. Stop talking differences and why don't we start talking about the things that we actually agree on, which is a lot. If you actually sit down, there's a lot of things that Brazilians agree on, you know. But those things don't come up because that's not material for the news. You see, if you if you're the new york times right if you're vision magazine in brazil polarization is where your audience is if you are a sane journalist if you're a competent journalist you're not going to make it very far because it's not sensational enough if you're pragmatic and honest and and you really you know have a critical view but you know, also a constructive criticism of, of things. Like, it's not gonna sell. People want fireworks and it's gotta be sensate otherwise it doesn't sell. So the the press plays its role because the press has become so incredibly corrupted by by private set the private sector oh, you know, that they can't even function as journalists anymore. A
0: lot of stenography going on these days with the press, a lot of people getting, you know, stories planted that they want. A lot of perception management going on it seems. And you're right about the polarization, that videos about unity or videos about what we have in common don't sell well on TikTok, I don't think. It doesn't get <laughs> the ratings involved. So.
2: Because there's nothing to argue about. You understand? Yeah. There's nothing to argue about. Like, if I, if I put something, and people put, I, I can't do it because I think, you know, it's just, I hate that strategy, but I understand why it works. If I say something controversial, I'm going to people who agree with me like it in comedy just as well as people who don't agree with me. And those people are going to be arguing with each other. Mm -hmm. You know what that's the algorithm Uh It's up to the surface. So now it's relevant. So it's like the very nature of the Internet and social media is to boost to the top, is to like make these controversial topics rise to the surface until they become the whole story. That's all people see. People don't see the good news. They only see the the polarized uh, kind of news. So it's, it's destructive because people aren't like filtering that going, wait a second. Like even myself, like I, I've been I've been critical a lot of like, you know, aspects of the American left, you know, with, the, you know, the, the, the transgender like competing, like, you know, the, the men who become women and they want to compete in the women's division. I've, I've never liked that. I think it's, it's a terrible way of, a, you know, approaching sports. But like I was like hyped up about that a while ago. And I realized, wait a second, how many transgender people that I actually know that have made that switch over and now competing? Well, I don't know a single one. But I'm all riled up. And I, I'm so right. angry about it. And I don't know anyone. That's in that, 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 that has undergone that. So I think that the internet has this way of like polarizing people. The media does that. And I'll give you another one. I have friends of mine. They're like, oh, these Marxists, the Marxists. And like, first wait a second, I've never even met them. I went to university in Brazil and in the United <laughs> States. I never met a Marxist. Like, who are these people? They're like unicorns. Like everyone talks about them nonstop. <laughs> never, met one. never met a Marxist. Like they're about to take over the country. Where? I don't know any of them. You know, but it, it's funny because like the internet has this way of making us believe that these terrible things are about to happen and they're actually, you know, it's, it's just a big scare. It's just like smoke and mirrors. There's not a lot of reality to these claims, you know,
0: it seems like they don't, if they don't get the outrage, the algorithm, like you said, doesn't work. People don't necessarily click as much. And like you said, all clicks are equal to the internet. It doesn't care.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm in, I'm in Tennessee and uh, the news just came out that they have banned drag shows in Tennessee, first state uh, to do that. And that's kind of coming on the heels of a lot of, I don't know if you know Matt Walsh, but they've, they've had these events in Nashville and the Capitol against um, performing surgeries or any sort of health services to trans people. And, I remember it coming out and they've they've had all these rallies and, you know, dozens of people have shown up to speak and, and they did all that. And like you're saying, uh, it, it created this huge uproar. But when like the University of Vanderbilt had to come out and say, okay, we're not going to do this anymore because the state is going to pass these laws and say, it's not, um, you're not allowed to do this anymore. But they added in there that on average, they've been doing uh, these procedures on three people per year for the last 10 years and it's it, it's just gotten so much attention and now we're banning drag shows and it's it's over three people
2: but we are under the impression that it's a takeover because it comes up so much because it's it's a i mean it's it's highly controversial topic i mean how can something like that not rise to the surface you know uh, but even myself i've fallen victim to this more times than i can count so like i try to like wait a second like this is not something to be you know it's not a hill to die over you know
1: well, it, it, it can affect anyone. No one is immune to it. And and like you said, you have to kind of self-correct because it's easy to get riled up and, and people are going to create the content so that you can get that confirmation bias whenever you want it.
0: Absolutely. So kind of switching gears a little bit here, would you say that your business, your your school, your affiliations here and in Brazil have suffered at all because of your political stances or does that mostly just sort of keep separated
2: i think that people that know me i have long-term friends students and affiliates they they've put up with so much of me over the years (laughs) because they know that i mean well i guess like but i i'm the kind of guy that if you criticize me i'm not going to get mad at you in fact i'll probably up you on my list of best friends because those are the people that i like the people who are critical of me i don't like people i don't like flatterers because i don't think they do anything for them i'm not trying to I'm not, I'm not, I don't live life to try to feel good. I live life to improve. So I like to be around critical people. So my mind is automatically geared that way as a coach, as a person. Like if you go to a tournament and you win, I'll, I'll say congratulations and I'll give you a hug. And immediately I'm going to start telling you all the things you did wrong, even though you won. <laughs> people hate that. right? So in some ways, me being like opinionated it has caused harm. Like I said, people who know me know that. That's just the way I am and they understand but I think it's closed a lot of doors to people that don't know me that they see this critical side. And I think I come across as a hater a lot of times because they only hear the criticism. You know, they don't like what you don't think they always understand where the criticism is coming from. So has I have I lost money and closed doors and lost on potential sponsors and seminars over this? Oh, for sure. Like, I have no doubt that like I, I know for a fact that some people you know, who are keen to sponsor me, like all of a sudden they probably they probably got a call or two, like not that guy. And then next (laughs) week, like, oh, we changed our minds, you know. So these things have happened, but at the same time, and I'm fortunate enough to make a comfortable living. Like I never you know, I like money, but I'm never obsessed over it, you know, like I think a friend of mine once told me a long time ago and it kind of stuck with me. It's like money is like oxygen. You need it. But after a certain amount you, you can't use more than what you need. You know, like, I don't need a private jet. Like, I see my friends, oh, I'm going to have a private jet one day. I'm like, dude, I'm perfectly fine flying economy. I'm 6'3", 245, and I fly economy and I'm flying. I mean, yeah, <laughs> sure, it'd be nice to have a private jet, but I don't need one to be a fulfilled person. So, I think that the amount of comfort I have in my life is enough. Nice.
0: So, you mentioned that, you know, you've taken some controversial stances on some stuff. And I read your book. I was actually really impressed because I had run into some of that same stuff a few years before um Roberto Pediera and Global Training Report, years into jujitsu and being kind of like, wow, there's actually like way more to this than what we had kind of been told when we started to some extent about how this was going to go. For those of you who don't know, you wrote a book called Opening the Closed Guard, and it's a... A history of Brazilian jiu-jitsu from primary sources and digging in libraries and interviews with people who are still alive, who are around at some of the beginning of that. And what you ended up doing was kind of rewriting the history of the sport from what we've been told about how this all started. Was there a lot of pushback from that community when you did that?
2: Yeah, just just one thing, man. Like, I think the credit really is to Roberto Pedreira because he did the heavy lifting. You know, I he as a as far as a historian goes, like, I'll give myself a blue belt, but he's the black belt. Like, there there's a rank here, and I and and he was very helpful throughout the whole process. So, like, I hate when I I don't like to give myself credit for something I really didn't do. What I did add were the interviews and my own perspective as a Brazilian American, as a competitor, as a coach. I think I add a unique angle because of that. But I wouldn't say that, you know, I'd added a lot in terms of historiography to this story. Uh, the difference is like Shockey is a very heavy read. Most people I know can't get through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my book was like very, it was a very light read. It's a very readable, it almost reads like a travel journal, you know.
0: Right, right.
2: Uh, but there was definitely some blowback, less than I was expecting, to be honest. I knew that I was going to, you know, pick a fight when I did this. But I, you know, I couldn't stop myself because I, I was too hyped you know, hyped up about it. Like I was so excited about this. And I, I'm one of those that believes that the truth is always better than omission.
1: Right. And it's a
2: hurtful one. You know, I think people in jiu-jitsu will be interested. And it turned out to be far more positive than negative. Like I opened a lot of doors. Some doors did close, but I think more doors opened. Because like, we're living in such a politicized world and everyone's in a competition of see who's more than who. That whenever I do something like this, the first thing that comes to people's mind is what does Robert have to gain from this? So they're immediately looking at what is my angle, right? And then once they read my book, the the first angle is Robert is just hating on the Gracie family. That's their first thought process. Right. the people who read the book, see, I'm very complimentary of George Gracie, Hoyce Gracie, Carlson Gracie, Carlson Gracie Jr. Like, oh, well, clearly he's not an anti gracie So that confused. So now, now people are looking for a different angle. He's doing this for the money. Well, everyone knows anything about money, knows that writing books is the last way on earth to make money. It's probably the worst.
1: <laughs> if you want to get rich.
2: Like writing books is probably the last thing should be on your list. I mean, so that can't be it either. But I think that the people who don't know me and didn't read the book, they, they, they're confused as to Robert must have a motivation. Right? Right. And honestly, though, I think my motivation is I like history. I like storytelling. I like writing. And I love this story. I think it's incredible. But if I'm going to tell it or help tell it, I'm going to try to be as truthful as possible. I don't believe in narratives. I don't think narratives are healthy. I think that facts are better than narratives and they always will be, even if they're hurtful. You know?
1: Right. Yeah, you've, you've mentioned a lot about history and I'm, I'm also a history major. And I, I did want to ask you, do you feel like there's a, a moment in history that best informs you on what we're living through today? I mean, it's it's a tough one, but it, is there something that comes to mind?
2: I'm going to give you guys and the the, the listeners. Uh, I, I just finished reading a while ago. It was it was actually a recommendation by Pedro. It was called it's called uh, From Dawn to Decadence: Five Hundred Years of Western Cultural Life. I think it's called From Dawn to Decadence. So it starts with Luther's Reformation all the way. I think the author finished the book in '96. So right after the end of the Cold War and. Man, it's it's just incredible how repetitive this is. We see patterns, you know, and the patterns are all there. I mean, it's the moment we're living is we, we've lived this chaos before. You know, it's it's reoccurring. And there's always a correction, you know, at the end there. Like if there's these cultural historians, you know, they, they uh, Vico and Jacob Burkhardt and Barzun himself, like they see these cycles that we go through and they start identifying these patterns. And like and Barzun mentions at the end of the book, he says something like it's it's a temptation for every historian to try to foretell the next step you know and you can't do that we're not fortune tellers but you start recognizing a lot of patterns and there's some reason for alarm because it's almost like we're i think he compares it almost like the middle ages like the end of the roman empire where there's this period of darkness like as far as access to information the classics die out and then like you know 800 years later there's this resurgence calls it the renaissance and and then, you know, the, the, the classics are back to being in, in vogue and like people realize, oh, man, all this knowledge is great. We should go back to being knowledgeable and not just ignorant. Mm-hmm. But I think the Internet has been I, 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 I use the Internet all day. I average five hours a day on my phone. So I'm not going to be a hypocrite. Saying, oh. mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm clearly. <laughs> using it all day. But it's it, the, the amount of information coupled with people's inability to filter it is terrifying to me. I think it's that right there is very, very scary. And it is a sort of like, it does seem to lead into an age of darkness and ignorance, you know, quite, you know, not an age of knowledge like you would expect.
1: Yeah, the, the irony there is that the first Dark Ages, some of the classical learning was replaced by the church and it kind of turned inward and we have to only focus on God and not these heretics. And so there was a lack of information. And now, now this time we're running into the same ignorance, except we have this overabundance of information and, and people think they know everything because they looked at Wikipedia or some guy on TikTok, and, and, but it, it ends up in the same place, which is insane, but it's where we're at.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, and I, I don't know how bad it's going to get until before there's a correction. But you know, there's it's a strange time, man. Like, and I, I'm not that old, but I remember, like, you know, if you were like a, when people had raised their hand, to ask a question, if it was a bad question or a stupid question, people could ridicule. Like, man, shut up, you know. Like, so people <laughs> like were more mindful about when they didn't <laughs> express their opinions.
1: Yeah, and like now,
2: it's like everyone just fires from the hip, you know. Hmm. I, prob- I do it too, I'm sure I do it. Too. We all do it, but' it's, I think that's what's changed is that we, we, the experts have lost their position in the world you know like you're very suspicious of academia. people have become suspicious of science and everyone's an expert and you know I literally I've had students of mine tell me this like why would you read a history book if you just Google it? And I'm like looking at them and I'm like,' <laughs> God, actually serious. Come here, Google the places <laughs> learning. Then they're dead, they, they don't understand why not. And they're looking at you like, why wouldn't it? You know, that they're, they're so, that the idea that learning is, a, is an exercise, it's like working out, is, is not, doesn't cross their mind. You got Google, you're good to go, man.
0: <laughs> that is terrifying. Yeah. I remember reading not too long ago a quote from somebody pretty smart was comparing the invention of the internet to the printing press. When the printing press first came out, the first book everybody printed was the Bible. And now all of a sudden you've got arguments because everybody can read the Bible. And now everybody's arguing about what the Bible means. And, you know, 300 years of religious bloody wars later. I think we're in the same boat with the Internet where just you wonder if we're evolved enough to be able to handle this level of information being pumped into our heads 24 hours a day. And it's starting to look like we're just not. This isn't going to work.
2: I think it requires a, a level of, I think information is good, but it does require education. You know, would was ironic because I remember from my youth, I was more idealistic. I've become more cynical over the years. Life has taught me that. In, in, <laughs> in harsh ways, life has, has beaten the idealism out of me. But when I was like in my early 20s, you know, and I, I str- this was the internet was still in its infancy. But I strongly believe I would have bet my life that the reason why the world was unfair was because people had no access to information and they had no means to express their opinion. And once the world had that, all these problems would work because people would learn, right? They right? would give an informed opinion and therefore a real democracy would come about. God, how I was wrong, like people <laughs> have that. And this is where the idealism has been beaten out of me because what's the excuse now? Because people have access to information and they choose to go find out what Cardi B is doing over learning something. They could, like, they, they could be reading Bertrand Russell, but they don't. They could be reading about, you know, like Isaac Newton, but they don't. they want mm-hmm. to find out what, what is Brad Pitt doing with his dog this morning. That's what they want to know. And I, it's hard not to be judgmental. I waste time on the Internet, too. You know, it, it's, this is where you, you're kind of pinned down because if you say something, you're arrogant. But, like, let's be frank here, guys. How many people are out there are reading Bertrand Russell? Like, not a lot. That's the kind of reading you would have to undergo to be able to let's try to express our opinions more critically. It starts with that, you know, and it's 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 a tough one because it's so judgmental. And I know I'm being very arrogant now, but I think where it starts, it's unfortunate. But the Internet is it is put a lid on any kind of real learning. It's there, but we have diluted learning so much now. It went from from books to radio to TV to internet articles, you know, now YouTube videos, Instagram, and now it's down to TikTok where it's down to ten seconds. Yeah. yeah. Ten seconds to learn something. Or uh, you lost me. Go, go. More info, that, more, more, more. And and that right there, I think, has people's attention span or patience for learning has is gone out the window. So I mean, can you learn in ten seconds? You know, you'd only have the perception of having learned. But I don't think I think learning is far more complex than that.
0: Definitely. Definitely. So one other thing you kind of brought up in the article in Bloody Elbow was um, the whole way that guns have been popularized in the last few years in Brazil to an extent that they weren't previously. I mean, you said you're a gun owner, but you're smart enough to know that more guns aren't necessarily going to fix all the problems that we face as a society. They're not going to stop crime, but Bolsonaro leaned really hard into that. So... How much of people's ideas on guns changed in Brazil recently?
2: Well, I'll, I'll tell you a short tale first, like why, how I bought a gun. And I've never had a gun, not because I'm against them. I've always been indifferent to the argument, really. I think there is an argument for guns, but I think Americans have an obsession with it that's odd to me. Like, the mm-hmm. argument is there, but the fact that some of these people have like 20 firearms at home is, that's just bizarre to me. Like, I don't get that part. They like think they're preparing for a war or something. It's like, dude, that's not self-defense. <laughs> Um, I remember like when people were fighting over toilet paper during COVID, during the lockdown, and I <laughs> saw people fighting over toilet paper. That's when I was like, okay, I know enough about world history. I know what happens next. <laughs> I know what the next step is, right? They're going to be breaking into my house to steal food. That's what's next. And that's when I went and bought a Glock. I'm like, okay, I, I, need, a, I, I need to protect myself. I need a gun. But I, I don't I mean, I don't walk around with that. I'm not, you know, but, but I, I think there is a strong argument for it. But like you said, clearly guns don't solve crime. Like the problem is much more complex. And I think Brazilians, because they, they they're so keen on uh, copying Americans and everything they but Brazilians don't understand, like, well, if we want to be as successful, financially successful as the United States, we have to do everything they tell us to do. And then my always like go do what they did, do what the United States did, not what they tell you guys to do. Trust me, the U.S. does not want <laughs> competition in the continent. Wake up, people! Like, <laughs> competition. Trust me. But you know, in Brazil, it's 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 a recent surge because when I was growing up in Brazil, no one had guns. My my grandpa had a gun, and but he was like the only, and it was like he never. I, I saw it once, like and he never touched it. It was there just in case. It was probably didn't even work. It was so old, but it was it was not something that you know there was crime but no one no, it was not even part of the discussion that guns were a solution to crime you know and i remember that police couldn't solve the problems in brazil in theory because the argument went we have small guns and the drug dealers have ar15 rifles so over time the police has been armed with you know armed vehicles right. helicopters tripod machine guns grenade launchers ar you name it mm-hmm. and the, the 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 criminals they have military grade Equipment, you know, they have like Stinger missiles and stuff. I believe, like these things, just break oh, yeah. like, the bar, and it's not not solved the problem. So I don't think that you know arms race is the solution to the problem. And but Brazilians, they they like the sexiness of guns. You know, it's in movies, it's in video games. You know, you play Call of Duty and you kill the bad guys, and you go, "Well, this is a solution." And even if you don't say that, you know, it's in the back of your mind that is the solution to the problem. And I'm again, I'm not opposed to guns. There is a strong argument, though, I believe, but. I don't think that you can solve, a like I mentioned this in the article, a problem that's 500 years old with a hammer. No. And that's where Bolsonaro came in. It's so appealing because it's so simple-minded to believe that if we arm all good citizens, of course good citizens me, everyone believes they're a good citizen, including the criminals. No mm-hmm. one believes they're a bad guy. That's a meaningless, like, oh, that's the bad guy. No one believes that. Hitler believes he was a nice guy. Like, it's a meaningless thing to say. But, you know, if they believe, that if they arm themselves— Right. Then the problem will be solved. And I think the U.S. is a perfect example of that, despite being so rich, it's the richest country in history, despite being like severely armed. This is the most armed country in history. As oh, well. yeah. I mean, we still have crime and it's not not high as Brazil, but it still exists. So that's clearly not the solution. I'm a strong believer that the solution lies in education. Right. And but it's not in vogue now. It's fact it's on its way down. I think it's getting we're becoming less educated, not more. How do you think we stop that?
0: How do you think we get people excited again about learning things as opposed to watching TikTok videos for two minutes and thinking that you know everything that you need to know about a subject, because you could pay attention to that video for two minutes? It seems, like you said, it's kind of a real, awful problem that we've got, and I don't know how we're going to solve this. Do you have any good ideas?
2: No neither. I, I mean, because I think learning is fascinating. I think it starts with stop putting idiots on pedestals. I think the day we stop putting Kim Kardashian, RDB on a pedestal like they're fucking people to look up to, like oh, what a reference that is. It's not a reference. It's garbage. Let's call it what it is. Uh, And I think that you know the left has done a lot of damage with relativist talk, like all all music is the same, all values all the same, all art is the same. No, it's not. There are levels to this. You get you know that you have Mozart and then you have like there's there's levels to everything we do, and I think it's. It's gone down a lot. You know, if you, if you look at our culture, like it's been degrading. You know, it's not getting better. I listen to these lyrics and I'm like, you want your daughters to learn that? You want your daughter listening to that? Because they're going to grow up believing believe it, and that's how they're supposed to behave. And that's what success is because everyone's obsessed with success. Everyone wants to be. They're going to be like their heroes. Their heroes are the, the Logan Pauls of the world, the McGregor's of the world. Like, man, I don't want my kids to act like that. No. Okay, back to fighting. You want to talk about a reference? Talk about Khabib. I think Khabib is a phenomenal human being, man, like not just a fighter, but as a human being, man, what a what a guy, what a real man that is. You know, like these are the people we should be looking up. To. Those are references to uphold, you know. But when we put you give children these awful references like what do you think is going to happen, they're going to grow up thinking that those are the people they ought to emulate, you know, and I, I think it starts with that. You know, stop putting these idiots on pedestals.
0: You get this generation of like Andrew Tate acolytes that think that's the way to go about your life. And no, absolutely.
1: And then you have teachers in the UK that have to do training on de-radicalizing or anti-extremist classes that they have to go to now because it just spreads so quickly. But that's, that's the same issue with the news, right? It's why does fake news keep growing and it's this huge problem? And there's a lot of reasons, but I think... Probably the easiest answer is that it's a way to make money. The lowest common denominator. You pump it out, you get ad revenue, and and then it just keeps going. And it's a it's a tough cycle to break.
2: And, and it's it's a problem when you put money. I mean, I'm for the. I like money. I work for money. I want money. I want to be rich. I want all these things too. But I think when you put that in the driver's seat, and it becomes the sole purpose of your existence above all other values. Above family, above honesty, above loyalty, above you know patriotism, above integrity, and that—that that is the sole value of your existence. You're gonna have you know you're creating problems. You know you're gonna have uh, deterioration of the culture. I think it's just, it just comes with it. You know it's just automatic. Like I mean, the healthcare system—it's been corrupted. I give you another one: the educational system. Like if you're a university, I mean, your priority is to make money. You're, it's private, so it's right. about money. It's not about education anymore. Now, if these two converge, great. But if there ever is a conflict between education and profits, we know where these guys are going. And these conflicts, as a small business owner, I these conflicts do exist. Sometimes I can do what's best for jiu-jitsu. Sometimes I do what's best for the business, right? And as a business owner, I have to find a balance. If I'm constantly putting business ahead of what's best for jiu well, then I'm going to start promoting 12-year-old kids to black belts because that's super profitable.
1: Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. It's easy to sell out, and as a culture, we're selling out because we have put money as the highest achievement of human existence. We're putting money above everything else. And when 50 Cent goes and says, you know, get rich or die trying, that's the message he's sending to kids. He's basically telling them. And these kids are in the car, in the back of the car. The dad's driving them to school, and he's going like this, and he's singing all the lyrics. And the killer kid is going, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be, get rich or die trying. I mean you can do anything you want and die in the process as long as you get rich in the end. And that's what we're teaching kids. Right, and then you expect what? You expect like mature, hardworking, honest, patriotic citizen. Like, good luck with that. It's deteriorated a lot. You know, I I live in Las Vegas, man. I I work really hard to keep my my daughters away from what I call the rot. It's the rot of Las Vegas. Right, it is the filth of you know the uh, that I live in. But I try really hard to keep them. Away from that, and it's it's a losing. It's very difficult because they get you know their school it comes in. You know, it's just it's just part of the the the, the beliefs of an entire generation.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you how you like living in Las Vegas if this is what you do because your schools your school is there and you know your work with the UFC is there. Like, if you could live anywhere at this point in your life, where would you live?
2: Yeah, my I I lived in Hawaii for three months. I lived in Maui for three months. If there ever is a paradise on earth, it's that place, man. What
0: Perfect.
2: Yep. Man. Perfect. And I love Hawaii. I love Hawaii. I wanna, if I'm ever rich one day, you'll see me in Hawaii. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's a, a guy in Hawaii. You probably know him. Mike Fowler teaches jujitsu over there on the North shore. I got to train at his school a few years ago when I was in Hawaii. And it was like, wow, I see why people do this. This just
2: is amazing. It's hard to go back. It's hard to leave. You go there. you're like, and it's so common. There's like a whole. There's like uh, like literature on this. Like, so you want to live in Hawaii? There's like all these books for tourists because tourists go there, and every single one of them is in the back of their mind. I'm like, why am I living in the snow? Yeah, but all these people are living. Look how many homeless people in Hawaii because uh-huh. you know, it, it, for some people they'd rather be homeless in Hawaii than have like a normal life, a nine to five, and you know, on the mainland. You know, so it's it truly is paradise.
0: You're not you know, going to freeze. Time. I live in Seattle. It was 25 here this morning. You're not going to freeze in
2: Hawaii. It's, and it's year-round, you know. Uh-huh. I love that place. So I would live there. Vegas is getting old. I, I'm ready. You know, I would like to leave at some point when my daughters are, you know, older. But at the same time, I like living here because it's close to the action. You're never bored. You know, it's cheap to eat. It's cheap to live. But let see. I think as my daughters move into their teens, you know, like I might consider living somewhere else down the road. But, yeah. yeah so, you know, I'm thinking. <laughs> gotta get rich <laughs>
0: <laughs> just don't die trying
2: not willing to die trying that's it
0: one last jujitsu question what is your favorite memory that you can think of from all your time training or just like one great memory that you can remember one thing that you would kind of take with you
2: i have one that i always cherish um which is about 2001 i had just moved back to brazil because I wanted to compete, you know, I was living right. in Vegas in 99 and 2000. And, and in that, you know, that those days, there were only two tournaments a year. And that was in California. You had to drive to California for that. Right. So these days you have two tournaments a weekend, you know, if you're going to drive, but those days had two a year, and I wanted to be more active as a competitor. So I moved back to Brazil for that reason. But in my head, you know, I still had in my head that like, you know, if you're not in Brazil with those guys, you don't stand a chance, you know, and that's where the competition is. And, I was very insecure. You know, I wanted it really bad, but I didn't have the confidence. You know, I was very insecure. And I trained there for maybe three to six months. And I lost my – division the state championships. And I was a purple belt at the time. And I lost the state cha- – I lost the, my division. I think I took – I lost in the quarterfinal or semifinal. I can't remember now. But then I – you know, my coach was like, no, man, you're going to compete in the Open. I couldn't believe he had asked because you had to be selective. Right. Get, like an invite. You know, he wanted me to compete and represent the team. And he had some really good guys on the team. And I couldn't believe that he asked me. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. And I ended up winning the Open that day. And I couldn't, because that's a big event, like the state championship in Sao Paulo. Having done all my training, most of my training in the U.S. And being new to Brazilian competition, so no one knew who I was. I came in and won. And I remember, like, I was, like, so happy. It's like I couldn't believe it. It was just, like, such a boost of confidence, man. I Even like now, remembering just, you know, makes gives me goosebumps. It was such a big day for me. I remember on the drive back, my coach, the one who had selected me, like, you know, everyone's sleeping in the bus. And he was sitting down. He was talking. And he said something I never forgot, man. Man, you did really good today. You can consider yourself the best purple belt in the state of Sao Paulo. (laughs) And me, now it doesn't seem like a lot. But at that time, you know, just hearing him say there's the sound of those words meant the world to me and I, I think that did a lot for my my confidence and it really I don't know it just it just stayed with me I never forgot that day it was a very special event
0: no I totally that's that's great having those those kind of early successes I think is the difference between like being able to keep going sometimes in jiu and not being able to keep going having those memories those little touchstones of like yeah, maybe this doesn't mean a lot to people who weren't around. I mean, I started in 2005 myself, but it was the tail end of that different era. And you, you have those memories of like tournaments you did really well at, or something went really well for you as a blue belt. And you take that with you. You never forget these things good or bad.
2: Uh, and, And sometimes it's a word of affirmation. Sometimes it's a, it's a submission you pull off. It's a match you win. It's a good day. It could be anything. And you know, it's the small stuff. I know it's like old wisdom to say that, but these little small things, they they really like make life memorable.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's about what we had in the way of questions at this point. You've been great. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this. Sorry we didn't ask a whole lot of jujitsu questions, but.
2: I, I actually like this because normally, you know, I've done a lot of podcasts over the years and it's always jujitsu, I think, this sort of. I think some other time I had a in of pockets without business. I'm an awful businessman, but like for some who want to talk about business with me. So I was like, you should never take my advice. That's the only advice I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fun. You know? I don't get to talk about these things very often, but it's you know, it's, it's been fun. Awesome. Yeah,
1: thanks so much. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can go to didnothingwrongpod.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Griza, B-J-J, BJJ as well as Pod. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.